Let us look together once again at Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. We come to verse 7. And we'll just read this verse. I think by now you're familiar with the context and can probably quote it. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. May God bless the reading of inspiration to our hearts. We have been in this section for uh, seven weeks, not consecutive weeks, but uh, mostly consecutive weeks. And so, so we've actually averaged one verse per week, haven't we? That's not by design. That's just the way it happened providentially. Paul's uh, subject matter here is the relationship of believers to civil government. And we may say more in another message concerning the, the difference between individual duty and corporate duty. But uh, he's dealing with it here in in a personal, individual way, as in verse one. Every soul, it's it's an individual duty that he's that he has in view here. And his his main point is that civil government is ordained of God, and because it is, then we owe submission or subjection to these civil authorities. They're called higher powers or and powers and rulers and ministers of God, literally deacons. And uh, the other word for ministers that we saw there in verse 6 that speaks more of a public servant. <clears throat> I was listening literally this morning on the way in to a discussion by some libertarians. You say, well, that's not a very uh, spiritual and edifying uh, thing to listen to. Well, there was a reason. I, I had seen the subject matter in the review, and I wanted to hear it before I delivered this message. So it was, it was a kind of sermon preparation, you might say. But this one writer who I'm sure would identify uh, as a libertarian, has published this book where he is challenging the rethinking of, of religion with regard to civil government. And I don't remember the title of his book right offhand, but uh, his basic thesis is that Christians have too high of a regard for civil government and especially for national type government. And uh, he said it is time to abandon this submission to civil government. You can see why I wanted to listen to the, the podcast. All I'll say is this. If you want to read the book, you're welcome to it. But when libertarians tell us to abandon the duty that is set forth in Romans 13, it is undoubtedly time to abandon the libertarians, or at least on that uh, particular point. And his, he, he did mention Romans 13, and his attempt to explain it away and, and diminish its significance and, and its present duty upon us was just sad, just very, very sad and, of course, unconvincing. So we come to verse 7, and you notice the word therefore. It could even be put at the beginning 
of the verse for the English order in which we normally speak. Therefore, indicates to us that this is a conclusion that is to be drawn, and it's something of a concluding uh, statement and a requirement or a, a concluding command to this whole section that addresses our duty to civil government. <clears throat> and let me just give this also before we, we get into this. It was my original thought to just deal with Romans 13, 1 through 7 some time ago, really two or three years ago. And I didn't want to just jump in to the middle of everything, so we went back to chapter 12 and worked our way through chapter 12. We finally got to this part that had really been on my mind originally. Now that we have gotten to the end of it, I'm not sure if we will continue on with chapter 13 or not, or we may take a break and come back to it some other time. But verse 7 is the end of this section. This is the, this is the therefore point. <clears throat> he has given us, in verse 1, our duty to civil government. Then in the following statements and verses, he gives us reasons for that duty. And now he gives us this conclusion of it. And it amounts to this. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. I believe that apart from the the command of verse 1, we have no other commands until we come to this in verse 7. And so let's consider first just the action that's involved here. It's called rendering. <clears throat> the word render means to pay or to pay back. It speaks of that which is due. And the other word there in verse 7 is the word dues. Render therefore to all their dues. Dues are things that are owed. Things that are an obligation. And we mentioned this, I believe, last time. That paying taxes and paying respect to civil government is paying a debt that we owe. We're not making a voluntary gift. We're paying a debt. That's the language that is used here. It's a moral debt, a moral obligation. Paying, and of course, he's in, in the first part of the verse, he's talking about taxes, different kinds of taxes. <clears throat> paying this public debt is as certainly a moral obligation as paying a private debt. Let that sink in. Suppose you borrow money from the bank to buy a house and you have a mortgage to pay. Well, hopefully you wouldn't think of refusing to pay that debt. It's a debt that you voluntarily entered into and incurred, and you must pay it. In the same token, we should not refuse to pay the debt that we owe in this, this public way, a public debt that is in the context here towards civil government. And that leads then to this further uh, application the ground that some have used to not pay taxes would not be a suitable ground for not paying a private debt. Let me explain. 
you probably pay a monthly phone bill to some corporation somewhere, and, and unless you're able to avoid this, very likely, and if you're like me, once you pay your bill to that provider, what they do with your money, or some portion of it, is pretty disgusting. And it's really against everything that we believe and, and hold dear. But, in my case, I do business with them because they're the only ones that can get me a decent signal out where I live. Most of the time. And it is nonetheless a bill that must be paid. Now, would I say, well, I'm not going to pay that bill because of what they're doing with my money. I don't approve of it. They're, they're funding this and that and supporting these wicked causes and so forth. Well, if you're not going to pay your debt, then you've got to be willing to suffer the consequences of it, and you're going to have a dead uh, phone pretty soon. And the same principles apply to public debts as to private debts. And the arguments against paying these public debts or taxes uh, fall pretty flat when you try to apply them in the parallel case of private debts. What the government does with our money after they take it or after we pay it is between them and God. God will hold them responsible for that. Let us not fall into phony uh, arguments to support tax evasion. It is a debt that is to be paid. <clears throat> and while we're on this subject, let me just go down this trail a moment. Though this is not the immediate context, it is the whole tenor of Scripture. Believers ought to pay their debts. Believers ought to pay their bills. I remember being in a church many years ago, and the brother in the pulpit actually had to admonish, and he just did it in a public way. He said a little more than what I just said a moment ago, but... And, and, I didn't know the details, but evidently there were some people in the church who were behind on their bills, and somehow it became public knowledge. And that is a terrible testimony for the God that we serve and the Savior whose name we claim. There may be many things that we can't do, but by God's grace, let us be faithful and punctual, paying our bills. And I've heard of churches that didn't pay their bills. I, I could tell you stories. <clears throat> it's a disgrace. And in the eyes of business or businesses in the community, they have no respect for those churches because they didn't pay their bills or they paid them late every time and so on. There's, there's just no excuse for that. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Well, let's look at the various uh, debts and dues that are mentioned here. There are four, and uh, we can divide them into groups of twos. The first two are monetary debts, tribute and custom. These are different types of taxes. A tribute is the term that was used earlier in verse 6, of course, and it's mentioned first here. This is tax on a person, personal tax, property tax, or income tax. Uh, that seems to be the, the focus of this term tribute. It was, and yet often is, paid to a foreign government far away. This is what uh, Jesus was asked about there uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 22 
when he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's, he was being asked about tribute. Should we pay tribute or this, this tax to, the, to Rome? In our present arrangement, tribute would roughly correspond to federal tax, Form 1040. God forbid that there should be some uh, United Nations tax. Perhaps tribute to Caesar was more on that order, a much more global government in that respect in those days. Custom is tax on sales, that is import or export duties, tolls, and the like. These were taxes paid more to local government to fund local government, which to us would correspond more to um, city or county taxes. We might even put state taxes in this category. And we're told to pay these debts. Putting this together with verse 6, we understand that God does not expect civil government to be run by volunteers. The, the laborer is worthy of his hire, even if the laborer is a, 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 a mayor or a governor or a sheriff or a congressman, president, or whatever, as in our arrangement in our day and time. There is a place for salaries, reasonable salaries for public officials from public funds so that they can attend continually, as verse 6 says, upon their duties. The last two debts that are mentioned here in verse 7 are what we might call mental debts as opposed to monetary. And he mentions fear and honor. The word fear is used in a variety of contexts in the, in the scriptures. In, the, in a context like this, it obviously means respect. We should give respect to those to whom it is due, to, to those to whom it is a debt, an obligation. And I'll remind you again of the very parallel passage in First Peter that deals with this and uses the same terms. <clears throat> honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, Peter speaks of fearing God when Paul in Romans 13 simply says, uh, fear to whom fear is due. It seems like in context he has civil rulers in mind. But understanding that they are the ministers of God, they are appointed by God, they are given their duties by God, then we see how the two passages certainly are parallel and and overlap. He goes on to say, honor the king. And notice the very next thing that Peter says, servants. Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Those who would argue that we only have to fear or respect good government and good governors run into difficulty when Peter says on a domestic level, those who are servants should be subject to their masters and fear their masters, whether they're good or bad. And that parallel needs to be kept in mind. There's a passage from the Old Testament that speaks similarly. Uh, Proverbs 24:21, My son, fear thou the Lord and the king. 
again, and this is kind of the Old Testament uh, equivalent of Romans 13. Because the king is appointed by God. Certainly in Old Testament Israel it was so. Uh, even, even wicked kings. So, showing respect or fear to civil rulers is showing respect and fear to God who has appointed them. Let us be careful when criticizing our public servants. I would not go so far as to say it's wrong to criticize them, but let us be careful not to disrespect their office. And you have to make that distinction. Mr. Hodge commenting here makes this helpful observation. Obedience is not enjoined on the ground of the personal merit of those in authority, but on the ground of their official station, that God has appointed that office. And yes, he's in control of the individual who fills that office. The word honor means esteem or to hold in high esteem. We should highly esteem those who deserve high esteem. And if there's any difference here or or nuance between fear and honor, it is probably this, that Fear has to do with those who are our superiors. Honor has to do with those who are our equals. And this spirit of honor to whom honor and and fear to whom fear is certainly necessary if we are to pray for our rulers as we are clearly commanded to do in 1 Timothy 2. I know you're familiar with that passage, but, you know, repetition is the key. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, all that are in authority. Authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You can't really pray for a person, and especially a civil magistrate of whatever level he may be, if there is not respect and esteem for him, at least in terms of his office. And though we don't usually pray by name for them in public, uh, we ought to keep praying for them both in public and private and may pray much more specifically in our private prayers. So as far as the duties that are given to us here in, in this verse, I think of a good example being Daniel in Babylon in the Old Testament time. He is a captive. He's a slave. He's under a foreign government. He's not free in Israel anymore as he was in his uh, early years. He's under this, well, a, a succession of pagan kings who only pay lip service to Jehovah when he drives them to it. And then Daniel is so hated that his enemies contrive a way to have him executed at the, at the mouth of lions. And you know the story that after that unforgettable night with the lions, 
the, the remorseful King Darius comes and says, Daniel, let me hear your voice. Say something. Are you there? Are you alive? Did your God spare your life? And listen to what Daniel says. O king, live forever. Here's the king that effectively had, had given him a death sentence. God overruled it. And Daniel pays respect and honor to Darius. That is a, a marvelous example that we should follow. Daniel had no ill will toward Darius, it seems. To say, O king, live forever. That took some grace, didn't it? May God give us that grace. It was the same with Nehemiah. He he serves under another Persian king and another pagan king. And he says the same thing to that king. Beloved, as Christians, we must conduct ourselves with decency and respect toward our civil leaders and their office in particular. William S. Plummer, a Southern Presbyterian in the 1800s, writes, There has been great reproach brought on the Christian religion by ecclesiastical persons claiming absolute exemption from the authority of temporal rulers, a thing utterly unknown to apostles and apostolic men, end quote. In other words, what a terrible testimony it is when the charge against a civil ruler is led by someone professing the religion of the meek and lowly Jesus. There's something wrong with this picture. They certainly didn't get that from Romans 13. We ought to avoid a rebel status and a rebel reputation. And the way to avoid that is to avoid a rebel spirit and to render fear to whom fear custom or honor to whom honor. Again, slaves were told to obey bad masters. On the other hand, we know that In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells the slaves, if you can obtain your freedom lawfully, then do so. But if not, then be content where God has put you. And be faithful even to a a pagan, unbelieving master. Say, well, what, what if these civil rulers persecute us? <clears throat> well, I think John MacArthur gives a good biblical kind of answer, kind of answer you get taking what Jesus says and what his apostles said. Persecution is not cause for rebellion, but for patient endurance and righteousness. That's what the scriptures in the New Testament plainly tells us over and over again. Now, I've been telling you for several weeks that at some point here in the study, we would address the subject of limits to the submission that is required of us. So we're going to delve into that a little bit here. This passage does not address one solitary exception. But, and and that alone ought to make us tread cautiously on this matter. But other scriptures 
undoubtedly show us that there are limits to the submission that is required of believers to civil authorities. Let me give two passages from the book of Acts that make that very clear. In Acts chapter 4, the uh, civil authorities of the Jewish nation put a gag order on the apostles. Don't speak any more in the name of Jesus. Quiet down. Shut up. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. This is a brilliant tactic. They sort of turn the tables and say, You're telling us to disobey God. You be the judge of the propriety of that order. They go on to say, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were under a great commission from the king of glory himself, and they could not remain silent. They could not shut up about him. They were in submission to those authorities as long as they could, and up to this point. Likewise, in chapter 5, It, uh, it ramps up a bit. And there's been imprisonment. And they're getting ready to bring them out to a court hearing. And, of course, the Holy Spirit, or, 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 the Lord sends, uh, I believe it is an angel that opens the prison doors. Yes, and... Uh, So then they run them down and the next morning and they bring them to the court, the council, which is the the Jewish court. The high priest asks in verse 28, did we not straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your daughter. You didn't obey the gag order and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Isn't that interesting? You want to make us guilty for the death of Christ. Well, you know, they did say his blood be on us and on our children. Now they've, they wish they hadn't said that. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And if that was in the book of Psalms, we might say, Selah. man's rules and regulations cannot overrule God's. And when there is a conflict between the two, disobedience to man is a duty because we must obey God and we must obey his law. I mentioned the example of Daniel a moment ago. We see another example of him in this matter in the Old Testament king in Babylon outlaws prayer. And what does Daniel do? He prays. He keeps praying, just like he always had. He had been in the habit of opening the the windows of his house uh, and kneeling down and praying, and he continued to do that. Didn't change anything of his praying Earlier, the three Hebrew friends in the book of Daniel were told that they had to worship this idol that the king had set up. And, of course, they refused to do so. So there, in those two examples, you have both uh, a, a cease and desist order for the worship of the true God, and a requirement to worship a false God or image. And in both cases, we see that they faithfully obeyed God, and God honored their faithfulness. 
He may not always honor your faithfulness the same way that he honored theirs, but he will honor it. He may be honored by the shedding of your blood, but he will be honored and and he will honor your faithfulness. If nothing else, you get an express ride to glory. So if civil government requires us to worship a false god or not to worship the true God or not to obey the Great Commission, not to evangelize, not to baptize, not to gather and worship, clearly they have overstepped their God-given bounds and we must not obey them. Uh, Just for historical uh, context, in chapter 25 of our confession of faith, there's some interesting wording here. Civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, and so on. And notice the little word lawful, in all lawful things commanded by them. If they command that which is unlawful, then we are under no obligation to obey. In fact, we're under obligation to disobey, to obey God rather than men. Three years ago, developments caught us by surprise. Here is what we might call case law now. Here's a specific real-life situation. Many churches and preachers, including this one, were caught flat-footed because we'd never had anything like this happen before when civil government began to tell the citizens and churches that they could not meet and worship. Uh, Thankfully, the city of Broken Arrow was much more um, hesitant and uh, lenient, we might say, to enact or enforce such policies, but most, or well, many places in our country and other countries uh, were not so uh, governed. When civil government tells us that we cannot meet and worship the Lord, it is time to disobey man and to obey God and to be prepared to suffer the consequences. And we don't know what the consequences might be. Whatever they are, we must obey the Lord. Public safety became the excuse. Public safety became the new God which many jurisdictions required to be worshipped. And I don't think we've seen the end of that. There's constant rumblings about, oh, the next, the next, the next pandemic and all. But once it became clear that it was not really public safety, but public safety was a measure, a fear-inducing measure to shut down uh, what were considered non-essential businesses for an extended period of time, and churches were lumped in with that among many other businesses and types of businesses and so on, and that there was a bigger agenda afoot of a totalitarian state That's when it's time to obey God rather than men. And we ought to tip our hats and and, and thank God for those who made a very, larger churches that made a very public stand on that matter. You know, smaller churches uh, have maybe some luxury that larger churches don't have in such uh, an environment. 
Now, having said that, we must be careful not to be ugly, not to manifest a spirit of hostility to civil government, but we must follow God's revealed will. I would say this, in an Acts 4 or Acts 5 situation, we ought to resist in a gracious way. And if we lose graciousness and begin uh, to be angry and hostile, we've lost the high ground. Matthew Henry says in so many words, don't make yourself more obnoxious than you already are (laughs) in the eyes of man. They already think we're crazy. Let's don't uh, confirm that in their thinking. Don't aggravate a situation already, or a situation that is already difficult. Anybody can make a situation worse. But blessed are the peacemakers. If we have to resist, resist in a peaceful way. I think of so many stories in church history, various times and places in which in days of very unfriendly civil governments, our forefathers in the faith met in private or met in secret, met in caves. There was times where they had to lay off singing because of the the decibels that it would create and that would draw the authorities even out into the woods where they were gathered to worship. <coughs> there are times we read when they would baptize in secret or at least away from public view. Again, to avoid detection. And there may be some wisdom in that. doesn't mean we have to keep doing everything in such a public way. But Daniel kept praying in a public way and was ready to suffer the consequences. But I'm saying that to say this. These... People in these various places and times and under unfriendly governments continued to meet, continued to operate. And even when they would be put to death for evangelizing, those Waldenses sent missionaries into other countries under the the guise of being... uh, uh, tradesmen or uh, 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 merchants and selling wares and so on and they would have Bibles hidden and they would look for opportunities to evangelize and so on. We may come to something like that to some measure. That's what they had to do in the Soviet Union uh, for many years. I want to conclude here today with a few questions to ponder. These are questions that I don't have clear answers for and I don't see direct answers in Scripture. But we are faced with these matters and at least articulating the questions may help our understanding somewhat. And I thought I would have more time, but I'll run through these as quickly as I can. There are 12. Number one, if civil powers become a terror to good works and a rewarder of evil works, as opposed to being a terror to evil works and a rewarder of good works, are we nonetheless obligated to obey and honor them? Does God condone their cruelty and their abuse of power? Well, framing the question that way makes it a very difficult matter to work through. 
Two, what is our duty when civil authorities become so corrupt and implement such wicked rule that obedience to them amounts to aiding and abetting evil? If we're not at that point, we're very close to it in our current times. Three, if civil government tells us to kill ourselves, are we obligated to obey? Many independent physicians, scientists, and researchers have argued that the so-called COVID vaccines put lives at risk. And I don't think there's any arguing that the evidence honestly considered shows that many, many more have died from the so-called vaccines than from COVID. You can do your own research and follow your your own conscience on this, but when civil government demands that you put your life at risk They have overstepped their God-given authority. They are outside their lane, and they ought to stay in their lane, to say the least. Pharaoh's law that the Hebrew families kill their boy babies was a command that was rightly disobeyed. And I see some parallel to what I've just spoken of. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it says it was an act of faith for Moses' parents to hide him. Number four, was Mordecai right not to bow before Haman, not to show common respect and honor. That's a tough one. Five, does a tyrant who is a lawbreaker forfeit the duty of his subjects to submit to him? And again, I emphasize the scriptures do not set forth a form of government. It tells us to be subject to whatever form we happen to be under. And so the the scenario that I envision here in this question is if a ruler trashes our federal constitution, which he swore to uphold, are we to obey the man or the document? Which one is, uh, holds priority? Which one is Caesar? Was Athaliah the true monarch in Israel for those six years in which she unjustly and murderously ruled was allegiance due to Athaliah for those years? Well, that's a difficult question, but we may be faced with something similar. And and some jurisdictions have been or have faced something very similar, whether to follow federal law or state law. Number six, if tyrants seize power by stealing elections, do we have the duty to submit to them? And, you know, I, I love to read my Baptist forefathers and writers on this, and I wish they all agreed they don't. I'm pretty sure that Robert Haldane would say, yes, we do have the duty to submit. I think John Gill might say there are exceptions. Let me give you this quotation by Gill. He says, there may be men in power who assume it of themselves and are of themselves and not of God. Well, that takes some explanation. But he goes on to say, And others that abuse the power that is lodged in them, 
who though they are by divine permission, yet not of God's approbation and goodwill. There may be some persons uh, who may of themselves usurp this office or exercise it in a very illegal way who are not of God nor to be subject to by men, end quote. Well, I'm just asking the questions. And maybe there are no good answers to many of these questions. But number seven, when, and Brother Martin dealt with this very uh, clearly a few weeks back, when Ahab demands that Naboth sell him his vineyard, must Naboth comply? Well, the answer to that question seems to be pretty clear according to 1 Kings 21.3, the Lord forbid it. But Naboth must be prepared to suffer under a wicked, lawless king. And, and we're at the mercy of God when we come to that point. Number eight, is there a danger of rendering to Caesar more than is his? The Lord told us, render or pay, same word I believe, to Caesar the things which are Caesar's. But who decides what things are Caesar's? If we leave it up to Caesar, (laughs) the sky's the limit. Are there limits to Caesar's claim? And if so, is it 10%, 40%? What if Caesar says... Give me a hundred percent. I don't have an answer for that. I'm praying for wisdom. Number nine, are we obligated to disclose all we know to those who will use that information for evil purposes? And, uh, you know, hiding innocent people in time of war is kind of that subject but I think we do get something of an answer to this from 1 Samuel 16 and uh, this is a fascinating passage God said to Samuel how long wilt thou mourn for Saul seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel fill thine horn with oil and go I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite For I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. Samuel was not obligated to disclose to Saul all that he knew. And that was at God's instruction. Quickly, number 10. And, and you know, we, there could probably be a whole series of messages on this, but somebody else will have to do that. Is rebellion and revolution ever justifiable for an oppressed People or for oppressed, or should Christians be involved in that? Maybe that's a better way to phrase it. Where is this taught in Scripture? I don't think I've given you this quote from uh, William Plummer. If I have, forgive me. But he addresses this subject, and of course, he's not a Baptist, and he's, he sees, I think he leaves the door open here more than, certainly more than Robert Haldane ever would, who was a Baptist. But he says something wise. He begins by quoting uh, Charles Hodge, who says, When rulers become a terror to the good and a praise to them that do evil, they may still be tolerated and obeyed. Not, however, of right, but because the remedy may be worse than the disease. I think I did quote that a few weeks ago, but now Plummer goes on to say, but there are, or there are but few governments 
that set up any claim to liberality which do not admit the right of memorial, petition, and remonstrance. But sometimes even these fail. He says, you know, most governments are at least, uh, they'll, they'll allow some uh, freedom of speech and so on and petition to some degree. He, then he goes on to say, but uh, Mr. Burke, and I think he means Edmund Burke, seems to think that when revolution is justifiable, the path of duty to good citizens is very clear. Perhaps it may be. Yet, mankind have made so many mistakes on this great subject that the prudent will be extremely cautious in taking one step in that direction. End quote. I'll give you another quotation here that explains how that wicked rulers seek to provoke their subjects to violent action against them so that they in turn might justify uh, coming down hard upon them and taking their freedom and imposing harsh measures against them. They don't want to attack a peaceable Crowd. They want to provoke the crowd to violence, and then they feel justified. And, and it, it gets so complicated, beloved, it's, it's, it's wicked. You know, we have these false flag events, and the more I learn about the history of warfare and nations, this false flag stuff has been going on probably forever. If, if the citizens don't... Um, get violent against the government, and the government will stage a scene of violence and blame it on the citizens, and then they're justified in coming against them. That's, what, that's the false flag principle. Now, here's the quotation. <clears throat> I'll tell you who it's from after I read it. When it gets down to having to use violence then you are playing the system's game. The establishment will irritate you, pull your beard, flick your face to make you fight because once they've got you violent, then they know how to handle you. I think that's the first time and will probably be the last time I ever quote in the pulpit John Lennon. I think he's referring there to the war protests in the late 60s and so on. But he understood how that, uh, the same point that I'm making, that, and that Mr. Plummer is making, that we may get into much more trouble than is wise or necessary to get into if we react wrongly ourselves. Well, Number 11, if bad rulers are a judgment from God on a bad nation, as it says repeatedly in Scripture is the case, at what point are believers who endeavor to avert that judgment opposing God's purpose? That's, that's a complicated question. And uh, the last one is as complicated should a religious majority bully its will over the non-religious? And we'll have to talk about that more in another message, Lord willing. Let me just close by saying, looking at these questions, and I'm sure others could be added to them, we realize how, how complex things get in a fallen, cursed earth. And we need wisdom. We need wisdom from God. We were caught, or many of us were caught without wisdom three years ago. And we need to pray for wisdom. And God has promised to give it to those who ask. James chapter 1 verse 5. 
He gives it liberally to those who ask. And he does not upbraid us, James says. He doesn't rebuke us because we need to ask. He doesn't say, you should already know this. He's gracious and he gives the wisdom that we need. So let's ask him for it.